<clears throat> just wanted to say hello <clears throat> and welcome this morning uh, on Mother's Day. So glad you guys are here with us. Um, it's good to see everybody uh, online, obviously. It's nice to catch up with people from time to time, um, just get out and kind of connect. And I'm really, really looking forward to getting back <clears throat> together where we can at least see each other face to face. There may be a little while before we can actually... Um, kind of hug each other and shake hands and do the things we used to do. But uh, in the meantime, it'll be nice to get back to where we can actually see each other. So we're talking about that, just so you guys know, <clears throat> as leaders, we're going to be talking about that throughout the week. Uh, some of the restrictions in Alabama have been uh, lifted. And so we're talking about what that looks like and uh, how we're going to come back together. So we'll be sending out information through email, posted on Facebook and on our website as well. So there'll be a lot, lots of places for you to uh, see that coming. Uh, so we'll be contacting you as that kind of uh, gets closer. And we'll let you know in advance and, again, let you know the restrictions and uh, let you decide about how you want to come back into that. Some people may be a little more conservative than others, and that's fine. Uh, we want to honor that. And, as again, as we do this, as we come back into uh, being together in the building, we're still going to be doing our live uh, live stream on Sunday mornings. It's something we're going to continue. So be looking forward to that. So if you are uh, not ready to come back into the building with us, you can still certainly catch us online. So be looking for that. Um, I want to start a message this morning called Presence. And I was reading um, my Bible this week. There's a passage in Numbers. I was come out of Leviticus and a lot of interesting things in Leviticus. And it, it sometimes, if you're not careful, when you read, especially scriptures like Numbers, you can... Um, you can kind of gloss over it. Um, it's called numbers for a reason because there are a lot of numbers in it. It literally starts with a census. <clears throat> numbers chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And this is what he said. Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. And so... The book of Numbers, he uh, begins to do that. And so again, if you're not careful, you'll read through it and it'll just list the families and who they were, uh, the leaders of the families. Uh, he talks about the firstborn. Um, he covers some stuff from, from Leviticus, some of the stuff about uh, Mount Sinai and all the things that are going to be happening there. So a lot of things happening in the book of Numbers. But again, it, it begins with a journey. Something I want to kind of uh, pay attention to. Uh, Numbers chapter 2 uh, kind of switches gear and he does something really interesting. <clears throat> and again, if you're not careful, you can pass by it and you can think that maybe uh, it's unimportant. But if, if you would think that, you would miss something really, really important. So I just want to kind of bring that out. This is Numbers chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Again, this is after the census, after they'd numbered everyone. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. So I just want to paint a word picture, if I can, of this. So the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, if you will, um, is, is this, it's, it's in the desert and they're traveling, uh, throughout. Again, this is a journey. They're going from bondage into a promised land and they're not quite there yet, but they have left bondage. And so there's, there's something powerful that's happening every day. Uh, the Bible talks about in other places that their shoes never wore out, their clothes never wore out. So throughout this entire journey, uh, as they were coming out of the promised land, that God was sustaining them. There was manna 
to eat. There was food every single day. And, and the and you've heard this, I'm sure, many, many times about the manna, but the whole idea behind it was it was a daily bread. It's where we kind of get that phrase in the New Testament. And, and the concept was that that God was with them and he was taking care of them. So the, the, the tent of meeting, the presence, um, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, uh, the place where the Ark of the Covenant, um, where the presence of God would come, and he'd set up the system of the priesthood. And, and so the, the, the chief priest could only come in, uh, one time a year. And he offered, first he offered atonement for his own sins. And then he offered atonement for the sins of Israel. And so it was a very specific order and a very specific way of doing things. And the reason why God does it, he's very, very specific in the Old Testament and the New as well. But, but the reason why is he's, he's painting a picture. He's creating a type and a shadow. You've heard those phrases before. And so the type and the shadow, you have the presence in the center of the camp. And he, he says in Numbers 2, after he numbers everybody and he identifies them by their family, he, he's basically saying how unique each person is and each family is and how God's designed them for a very specific pur- purpose. And of course, we can we can see that translate into the new covenant as we kind of move forward. But this this presence, the presence of God was in the center of the camp. And he, and he said, what I want you to do is when, when, the, when the presence is still, when, when God would, would land, for lack of a better term, then he would say, I want you to camp around it. And so they set up all the 12 tribes of Israel in camps on all four sides of the tent of meeting on the tabernacle. And, and the idea behind that was that, that it wasn't for the, the Israelites to protect God from the outside. I mean, like God needs protection. He pretty much shown that he doesn't need that. So, so why were they camped around that? And, and, and part of the idea was that he was drawing them close and he wanted to remind them that the whole point of him being the God of Israel was to literally be the God of Israel, to be with them, that his design and his idea was never to have them at a distance. Um, that's what religion does. It pushes people out and it makes them feel distant even from God. And so we're going to be kind of talking about that as we kind of move forward. But there are a couple of things that in the journey, the promised land, as they were on their way to the promised land, um, the families were together, but they were unique. And you see this in the church uh, in, in ways that God has gifted us, that we're all unique in the gifts and, and the ministries that God has given us. Very, very specific. Um, he's, he's, he's woven us together. He's, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says, but then he puts us in a family. And, and the idea behind that is that every one of us is unique, but we're unique together and that each person as unique as they are does not make the whole and he reminds us that we need each other and so that's a whole other sermon series that we'll talk about uh, in the future and we've talked about in the past but the whole idea is that God he put families together even though they were unique each person had a part to play and they were never designed to be alone never they were to camp even though they were on one side of the presence the other side of the presence they were there together as a family and then the most important thing I mentioned before is that the presence of God was to be in the center of the camp. The idea was that wherever God would go, that, that this, the family of God would be right there with him. And Moses even made this comment at one point. He said, he talked about going into the promised land. He said, Lord, unless you go up with us, unless you go before us, we don't want to go. And the whole idea behind that is, is God had made promises about a place. 
And we see this, I mentioned this last week about funerals, how often you hear people talk about heaven. Even in evangelism and sharing your faith with people, the danger is we'll have a conversation with someone about a place. And so we'll make heaven something amazing, which you don't really have to try. Scripture speaks to how amazing heaven is. You know, again, the streets, what kind of place do you, do you pave the streets with the most, you know, the most valuable commodity on earth and gold? And so, of course, the place is amazing. But what makes the place amazing is not the streets of gold. What makes the place amazing is who is in the center of the place. And that's the picture you see, that it, that it, to be the people of God, to be Israel, became, became so important. And, and, and they would oftentimes speak down to people who were not of the family of Israel. And God's whole design was to show them how amazing family could be in the presence of God. And that the idea behind that was to be a model to the world, to draw other people into the family, never to exclude them. And so we get this picture sometimes when we're sharing our faith and, and we, we make it about the fact that they're sinners, that they're outside the camp. And oftentimes we make it about, you know, about the place, that church is amazing, you know, that the, that the people there are wonderful. And all those things are true. But again, the whole reason behind that is because the presence of God is there. And if the presence of God is there, um, in another part of Scripture, the word Ichabod was written above uh, the place because God was no longer there. So religion can can put a picture of God. Uh, we, we heard it said like this prophetically, it could be a picture of a fire, but never actual warmth, never actually warm you. The presence isn't there. It's a picture of something. It, it's a, it's a, uh, the, Timothy talks about uh, denying the power of God. And so we, we have to be super careful of that. So there's this journey that the design was that as the, as the Lord would move, that the people of God would move with him. And, and if the, if the Lord didn't move, if he didn't go to a new place and they stayed there. And, and then the family, the whole idea was to draw people into the family. So they were on a journey. There was a promised land to be had. Um, it was about conquest and rest. So they're heading toward a place where God says, I've, I've, I've given you a place. But my expectation is that you're going to come alongside me, me being the leader, me being the father, you being the family, and I'm going to lead you into this place and I will fight your battles, but you will fight with me. And so that we often miss that. We're like, Lord, just do it. And the Lord's like, I have done it in the cross. I've given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. What's your part to to come alongside to God, to co-labor, uh, to to be co-heirs with, with Christ, the Bible talks about. What's our part. And our part is not to do God's part. Our part is not the presence. Our part is the family. Our part is to be led by the God of the family. And so again, there's conquest. And then of course, the promised land was also a place of rest. And, and we see this in, in Jesus. Um, the Bible talked about, I read this and talked about this last week, how Abraham longed for a city whose builder and maker, whose architect was God. So think about that and listen to what it says again, that God, that, that Abraham longed for a city and if we're not careful, we'll stop there and make it about the place. We'll make church about the building. We'll make heaven about, you know, the mansions and the, and the streets of gold. And that's not at all what God's trying to do. God's saying that the place is only important if the person who makes the place is there. 
And if he's not, then the place is going to hold no value. You see this. So it's so easy to see even in the world. You, you see people who chase after the things that are going to make them comfortable. They want a nice home. And there's nothing wrong with having a nice home. There's nothing wrong with having money. The whole idea is don't let those things have you. And the idea behind it is, is if, if the purpose in the, in the center is not where it needs to be, if you're not centered in God, then no matter how good things are around you, they're, they're not going to be worth it. So no matter how much the streets are paved with gold, um, they're not worth walking on if the path to the to the presence of God isn't there, and so that there's a picture of a rest that is supposed to come in Christ. And uh, and Abraham again was looking for a city, but he wasn't looking for a city. He was looking for the builder and the maker and the architect of the city. It's helpful to know that. So why would you want to be in His presence? This is something I run into a lot because I, I've had encounters with God and I had experiences. I'm, I believe many of you have as well. Uh, obviously, you have. And, and, and you want to share that with people. And again, the danger is we talk about missing the mark. We talk about sin and we talk about so many other things that religion kind of veers us off into. And there's nothing wrong with, with understanding the whole concept of sin. I mean, we get that, but most people are already there. Most people understand that they've missed the mark. What we often don't talk about is the mark. And so, Part of the mark is the character of the God, of, of the God that we serve. So how do you see him? How do you see God? Well, how do most people see God? I remember how I saw God before was judgmental, distant. Um, oftentimes we, we tend to picture things, um, the way we've had in our family. If our family was dysfunctional, then that's often how we see God. And so it can get, those kind of things can get in the way. We often see God as legalistic. It's about his rules and it's about the standard. And the standard is important, but we forget that the standard was important. But what was even more important was the fact that God wanted us as we made a way so that someone could pay to get us to the place of the standard. And the whole idea behind that was always, I long to be with you. I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. That's what he he goes after. But what is his character really like? What is God like? Not what we perceive him to be. You ever wonder why God gave us the Bible? Um, that it's not just stories that have been passed down from years and years and years, although some people think that's the way it, that, the way it works. But I was fascinated with I understood the Bible and the, and the supernatural aspect of the Bible. And if you really want to go after this, and if you're intellectually honest, you, you can come to no other conclusion that the Bible is a supernatural book. And part of the reason why is it, it, it names names. It, it goes overboard to speak to historical accuracies in Scripture and every time the world has said that the Bible is inaccurate because of this, there's been a discovery at some point in history that's proved the Bible wrong and people false. And so the Bible is a supernatural book, but why did God give us the Bible? And the answer is this, because he wanted to give us a revelation of who he is. The danger is that we would make him out to be, and this is what we see in scriptures, what we see in religion. We tend to worship things. We tend to worship, we, we, we take a piece of wood. Um, one of the prophets talked about this and we carve part of the wood into an idol and we worship it. And then we put the rest of the wood in the fire and it warms us. And, and there's no, seems there's no, uh, incongruence in the way we think about that. And yet we do that often in modern day idols are just as big as they were in, in the Old Testament. They tend, typically tend to be intellectual. But the, the danger is that we perceive God to be someone that he's not. 
And so the scripture comes and it brings revelation of God. And the reason why, and this is one of the most important things I'm going to say today, is that it must come by revelation, then experience follows after. And if we don't, then what happens is we we have experiences and then we allow our experiences to define our revelation of who God is. So we make God out to be what our experiences have told us that he is. And that is altogether not how this is supposed to work. So the God of presence is God is here with us. And so how do we know that? Jesus, he made a very interesting statement. This is what he said. He said, follow me. He didn't come and say, pray the sinner's prayer and everything's going to be fine. That's not what he did at all. He, he would come to the disciples and he would say to them, follow me, leave everything else, the importance and the value of everything else and come and follow me. What was he after? The whole idea was, I want to demonstrate. I want to show you. I want to model to you who I am and who the Father is is. You see this in John 14, 6. <clears throat> it says, Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've heard this a million times. And then he goes on, he says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, you do know him and have seen him. And then one of the disciples, Philip, asked the question. He said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus, I don't know how in the world he kept from saying, you know, you're so dense. <laughs> it just had to be his love for us. Had to be. Verse nine, this is what he, this is how he answered. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? So scripture gives us a revelation of Jesus. And then as we read about Jesus, we begin to encounter him. We begin to follow him. This is what Christianity, a walk with God, looks like. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks it this way. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God had spoken to the people of God in different ways, types and shadows often. And then verse 2, it says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And so he's speaking of his son. And verse, verse three says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So there's this picture in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers where they're on a journey. They've left bondage and they're on the way to the promised land, but they're not there yet. And that's obviously a picture of where we are in our walk with God. Uh, if we've accepted Christ, if we've come into the kingdom, then what, what has happened is we have left bondage. We've left that, 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 uh, type and shadow of Egypt and we've come out. And what's fascinating is the picture of that is so beautiful that when they came out, they didn't know their God completely yet. They just knew him as the, as a deliverer. They knew him in his power. They knew him in a demonstration of majesty, but they didn't know him the way he wanted to know them and the bible says when they came out they came out and that and that the place of bondage gave them so much money gold they walked out with so much that they were probably the wealthiest people on the planet at the time and they went into a journey and in the journey god took care of them in every way and, and because they didn't understand, and this is so what so happens, so often happens in times like these, but it can happen in any crisis, whether it's personal or worldwide, like the one we're experiencing, is we take our eyes off Jesus. 
We take our eyes off the revelation of who he is and we begin to ascribe to him something that he's not. And every single time it gets us in trouble. And you see that with the people of Israel who came out, the family who was supposed to be encamped around the presence of God, who were not supposed to move without him, who would follow after him, who would long to know him the way he was knowing them. That that desire, that recognition that this is the God who brought me out. This is the God who's promised me and he's shown me that he's faithful. And yet the Bible says the people of God begin to grumble because they wanted something else besides what God was doing. And again, it goes back to idolatry is is making a God out of something that isn't him. It doesn't matter whether it's intellectual or a piece of wood that you carve. It's still the same. And so the danger is you can come out of bondage. And if you're not careful, you can take your eyes off Christ. And just like Peter did when he came out of the boat, he looked at the storm rather than look at Jesus and he began to sink. And it happens to us all the time. And that's why grace is so important and so powerful. Because God in His kindness, remember it's a journey, and He said, follow me. And sometimes in following Him, you get distracted and you get you get off. So what do you do when that happens? Do you just give up? Do you feel like, again, because someone told you that God is like this, that He's angry with you when you miss it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the New Covenant says. The new covenant says that he is no longer angry with us because of our sins. Why? Because our sin has been paid for in Christ. So does that make sin okay? Of course it doesn't. The whole point is that we sin can distract us and take us off, take our minds off God. It can take away the inheritance that we're walking with. It can get us lost in the wilderness and it can turn into something horrible long before we ever come into the promised land. And the Bible talks about that even that when they were supposed to go in, they, they, because of their unbelief, they wouldn't go in. They wouldn't move forward into what God had promised them. And the Bible says they walked around in, in the, in the wilderness for 40 years until, until all of the ones that they had numbered who were the young men at the time died except two men who had the faith to go in. And they did. But even in that time, even in God's grace, even in the old covenant, their shoes never wore out, their clothes never wore out, and he fed them every single day. And so I just want to remind you that God's not going to abandon you. That's not what he's doing. He, he's with us. And the whole idea is that, that we would camp, that we would make our camp. We, we're going through our day, and I get it. But at some point, we have to make our camp with the presence of God. We have to come back to center and say, God, I believe in you. I trust you. I want to learn about you. It's why I read. It's why I read scripture. It's why I pray. It's why I give you time. It's why I gather with God's people together. Even though we're unique, we come together and we come together around God's presence. And that's what DCF is about. It's about coming together around God's presence and saying, God, if you don't go, we don't want to go. We want to do it. We want to be authentic. We want to be genuine. We we want the power of God, but we don't want to worship the power of God. We want to worship the God of the power. And so we want that. We want the power of God. We want signs and wonders. We want miracles. And I believe that so often our faithless generation, even in all of us, is what's caused us not to see some of the things that we long to see. And part of that is because we ascribe God, we ascribe to God something that the enemy is doing rather than who he truly is, especially in crisis. And that's the moment, that's the place of testing where we find out what we're made of. It's not like God doesn't know, but often we don't. And so when you come to that place and and you've been tested and you've failed miserably, come back and follow after Jesus. Peter denies Christ three times, the Bible says. And Jesus comes back and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And the whole idea was in, in the three rejections, he brought three affirmations and he, and he brought him back into his presence again. And God's doing the same thing. So let me leave you with this. 
It's just a simple phrase, but it's important because religion can get in the way so often. You can do things for Him, but not be with Him. Let me say it again. You can do things for Him, but actually not be with Him. And you see this in the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 and 11. I'm not going to read the story, but I'm just going to remind you. The younger son goes away. He leaves the presence of the father. He leaves his home. He leaves where, where he should be camped in his father's presence. He goes off and he does his own thing. He takes his inheritance with him. It's interesting that even in his, in his missing the mark, God still gave him an inheritance. God's, his, the father's grace is still apparent even in the brokenness of the son. He goes off and we know the story. He comes back. He's restored. He's repentant. But he comes back with a mindset that says, I'll be like my father's servant. I'll serve. He'll be a taskmaster. I'll ascribe to him something that I discovered when I was feeding the pigs and working for the man. And the father had to remind him that I'm altogether not like that. That's not who I am. It may be who you think I am, but it's not who I am. And so he shows him by throwing the party, by being extravagant in his grace. And the Bible says his, his older brother, the son, working in the field. Now think about this. He was, quote, unquote, in his father's house, but he wasn't. He was in his father's house, but he was never with the father. He was doing things for his father, but he wasn't with him. And we know that because the Bible says he's because of the forgiveness of his younger brother that his father has forgiven him. He gets angry and he doesn't feel he deserves it. Of course he doesn't deserve it. That's obvious. But does the older brother deserve it? Because in his head, he's working hard. And see, we get that way sometimes. We think, I've done so much for you, God, and then these bad things happen or these, the scenario of crisis comes and somehow you've forgotten me. And again, we begin to ascribe to God something that is not true about him. And, and he comes into him and he says, he says, I'm angry because this your son. Not even, and again, it goes back to the family. I don't want him to be part of my family. That's what the older brother was saying. And in the encampment, it didn't matter whether you wanted Judah to be part of the family or not. They were. Whether they had brokenness, whether they had issues, it didn't matter. They're part of the family. And, and you, don't, you can't change that. And what does change Judah, <laughs> picking on Judah, that, that, that brings maturity is being in the presence of God and being in the place of family where there's grace and there's kindness and there's mercy and there's love and also there's challenge because that's what families do. It's what real families, what healthy families do. And so the older brother says, I won't come in. And he said, this son of yours, you threw a big party for him. You killed the fatted lamb. And, and the father said, you could have had one of those anytime you wanted. And I wonder, so often we've been doing things for God, thinking we deserve something from God, but we've never actually, or maybe, maybe were before, but in the moment we're not with him. And we've forgotten who he is and what he's like. And we've forgotten that his grace is sufficient and his kindness and his goodness is always there. And you can ask. The Bible says literally about grace that you can come into his presence with boldness. Why? Because you deserve it? No, of course not. Because Jesus did. Because your older brother, your family paid a price for you that you couldn't pray. You couldn't pay. And so I just want to leave you with this. That this grace is so important because this is the journey that we're on. With the journey, there's an expectation that we come into fullness, that we come into the promised land, that we grow and that we walk in the fullness of our inheritance and we grow what the Bible calls from glory to glory. The only way we can do that is to walk in the revelation of Scripture that has been given to who God is and what He's like and then begin to move that from a frame of reference that's outside of us to the frame of reference of God inside of us. 
And so if you think about it again, we are the tabernacle, we are the temple, and the presence of God is encamped within us. And that's that inner voice, that's that longing to hear and say, God, what is it that you're doing and where are we going? And so I want to just ask you to do something. I just want to ask you, will you invite, if you're out, if you're the older brother and you've been feeling like God has left you or whatever the situation may be, will you just take a moment and will you just invite him into the center again? Will you allow him to be encamped inside inside of you? Will you allow him again to be the center of who you are? And so I just want to pray for us. And if you've not done that, if you've never done that, today's a great day for you to do that. But if you've been outside, you feel like you're outside the camp, it's time to come in. It's time to let grace do its work in you. It's time to come back into the presence of God and the presence of the Father. And as we move forward, our longing is, God, move by your mighty power. Show us who you are, Lord. We know who you are. We see, we've seen the revelation. Now we want to experience in greater measure who you are and your power and your majesty and see your hand move among us and see your hand draw people into the kingdom. Draw them back to yourself. And so let me pray for us. So Jesus, I just say thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that the picture, even in numbers you paint, Lord, is that, we, that we're a family and that we are designed to camp literally in your presence. And so, Lord, we want to do that. We want to make our bed in your presence. We want to make our, our, our life, our marriage, our, our kids, our parenting, Lord, our businesses. Lord, what we do for a living, we want to make... We want to make our camp there in your presence. And we want to hear your voice, Lord. And we want to we long, Lord, to hear your voice. And Lord, and we want to remember, like your like the father said to the older brother, you could have had a fatted uh, uh, lamb anytime you wanted. And so, Lord, we just call that out, Lord. If there's a need this morning for healing and brokenness, emotional healing, Lord, we just call that out, Lord. Let that be the, the sacrifice that Jesus made, has made it. It's enough, Lord. And you can heal and you can make whole and you can bring peace where there wasn't peace. But Lord, it's only going to happen if our minds are stayed on you, if we settle, if we camp in that place where we let you be who you are, Lord, not who we thought you were or wish you were or been told you were, that we discover for ourselves. And Jesus, as we follow hard after you, Lord, we long to know you more and long to be responsive, Lord, to your voice and your direction as you lead us in this journey. In your name we pray.